Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Thanks very much, Tom. Uh, afternoon, everyone. Um, so I think you know that kind of explained my background as a data addict. I think probably to add to that, I'm a, a theoretical physicist gone rogue. Um, I've spent probably the last 12 years or so working with Oxy, and I'll tell you a bit more about that in a moment. But uh, prior to that, I did a PhD in artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, making robots play football, which uh, is a lot of fun. Um, but uh, probably about 12, 13 years ago, along with the Oxford University Social Policy Institute, we were doing a lot of work with data held by government, basically data sets that were produced as the result of running services. So we call them administrative data sets, which is the administrative data in the title. And we were looking at how you could use that, those kinds of data sets to target services, to evaluate impacts of particular programs, that kind of thing. Um, we launched a commercial spin-out from the university, and that's Oxford Consultants Social Inclusions. So the Oxford bit is we are from Oxford University. We're not based there, though. We're based in Brighton uh, because it's better and it's by the sea. Um, but uh, you know, we, we, we still work very much get geared and aimed towards improving public services, so working with government agencies, with charities and community organisations, um, and bringing in academic rigour and robustness and so on. And what I was going to talk about today was, was, was really something that we've been working on at Oxy for probably about two years, uh, a major project commissioned by the Department of Communities and Local Government, which is one of the, uh, the ministries, um, government ministries. Um, but it's really kind of guess a culmination of, for me, around 20 years' work of using this sort of data to produce um, useful tools that you can then improve, use to improve services. Um, so I'm going to kind of go through that. It's quite a mixed audience. I, some of you may know all about what I'm talking about, and this is kind of you know, too slow and I should speed up. Some of you, it might be news to you. Who's heard of the indices of deprivation before and or used them? Right, one in the room. A room full of uh, new victims. Good. I'm not going to go into too much detail about kind of what's in it because it's a massive thing, but I will hopefully give enough background and overview so you can kind of get a sense of why it's interesting, um, why we should care and that kind of thing. Okay. So, without much more ado then, let's kind of go into the indices. The indices deprivation is a way of assessing how deprived, and I'll come back to that if we want to talk about that in a bit, how deprived particular areas across the country are. And you might want to do that because, for example, you might want to understand the areas of particular social and economic need, so you could target more services to them, or, for example, the big lottery might choose to allocate more greater funds and so on to projects work in those sorts of areas. It doesn't say you need to do that. You know, there are all sorts of ways you can, you can run programs. Um, but if you were going to target those sorts of programs at the most deprived areas, this is one of the ways that you might choose to do so. It's commissioned, as I said, by one of the, the government ministries, um, and it's really commissioned as a way of supporting work from government agencies at national level who might be looking to run main large-scale programs right down to very small charities who might be using it to uh, uh, show why, as evidence of why they need funding and should be win funding for particular projects that they're running. So it kind of works at, at all scales. Um, this is a map. The, the, the index that I'm talking about at the moment is, is, covers England as a whole, but there are similar equivalents for the other countries, so Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. They've been working in South Africa and Southern Africa 
our partner group working on similar ways of measuring deprivation. Different types of measures and indicators that you use, but still the same kind of approach. It brings in lots of different data that is held by government or not always published as open data. And just to give you, pick up some of the examples in a bit, but some of those things might be around benefits that the Department of Work and Pensions pay to people on low, who have low income or health problems or are out of work. Um, it might be around kind of access to t services like hospitals. So, for example, we can, um, through data sharing agreements, look at the numbers of people who will be admitted to hospital for emergency reasons or for mental health purpose reasons and so on. So there's an enormous amount of data sources that we've drawn on for this. And the kind of first part of it is to really get a good handle, a good understanding of what data government, different government agencies hold that you can use to bring to bear on this, this, this issue. There are various kind of statistical techniques that go together, but what we come up with is essentially a map. It's a data set that's published at small areas, so things called super output areas, which are weird and wonderful statistical geography, there are about 32,000 of them in England, so they're quite detailed. Each one holds about 1,500 people, so if you kind of think of that compared to your, to your local area. Um, and they can each be compared, so you can see well, where are the most deprived areas, who's scoring highest on this, and where are the most deprived areas in my area, in my local authority or in my city and so on. Um, so that's the kind of facts of it, the kind of basics. And we'll come back and please do ask questions if any more detail would be useful. Um, it's, a, say, it's about a two-year piece of work, so uh, 20 minutes, I will not go into too much detail. The really interesting things, and the two things that I want to kind of bring out here, first up, how this is used. And this is why we call it a billion-dollar data set, or a billion-pound data set. It is used for a vast amount of of purposes and different kind of uses that we're coming up with all the time and seeing used out there. It is, I think, a really good example of what you can get out of open data when you make it available, when it's robust, and when users trust it. So it's got a very open provenance in how it's developed and so on. So I think it's a great example from government sources of, a, of open data that's widely used. It's kind of one of those examples. Um, so this was the day after we published. Um, for a brief glory moment, we were at the top of the BBC website's most popular. Um, I'm not sure how many minutes before number two, obviously, probably came to greater prominence. Um, but when people talk about where the most deprived areas in the country are, or our funding is going to be targeted at the most vulnerable areas, the most deprived areas, it's typically this data set or something very similar that's used. So the kind of original focus from the media who were picking it up was something like this. So Jay Wick, Justin Land from Clacton, is uh, the sorts of things that media kind of pick up on very, very, very quickly. Um, there's lots around this, and I think one of the, you know, although the, the, the kind of the league table and seeing who's at the top of that is a, has obvious negative kind of consequences and connotations, there is something important that Jay Wick community centres get more money, better funding to run the sorts of programmes that they want to be able to run. So there's some kind of positives there as well. Um, a lot of media, so this is the kind of first thing, this is picked up widely. It's a really important, a really interesting set for commentators, for media and so on, um, you know, kind of picked out and that sort of thing. Fairly quickly after that, it starts getting picked up and used by other groups, other organisations who are thinking about 
how can I take this data and apply it to my kind of funding programs? So this is, and there are lots of ways that people publish it or republish it to use. So this is the DCLG, the Department of Communities and Local Government, uh, their, their data explorer, which just publishes it out. Um, you know, and these are all these small areas you can see with a great concentration around London. These are what are the super output areas I mentioned, and 32,000 of them. And you obviously get it up on um, interactive mapping, and any of you can probably go to those and make the links available afterwards. But any of you can kind of go and see, download this data. It's open, anyone can use it. Very quickly, we also get then local authorities, so often run their own open data portals, or what we used to think of as local information systems. So there's a, a very quick re-digesting and analysing, saying what does this tell us about our area, about patterns of social and economic deprivation in our area. Um, so these are a couple of examples. I think one from Hertfordshire and one from Trafford. We were very quickly on the case. And this comes out the sort of same day or the next day. People are really interested in this. And you get cabinet officers and sort of local councillors and so on saying, what has this told us about you know, the patterns of, 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 of need across our area? And how does that match what we know of? Because this is a quantitative data set. And it often basically is there to back up what people on the ground already know um, or, or, or may think they know. So it's quantitative backup. You then start getting research involved. So as well as the media, as well as pub public service providers and commissioners like local authorities, you get researchers. So this is one of the uh, uh, UCL um, outputs, looking very quickly at how, for example, the small areas in London have changed from, in this case, from 2010 to 2015, <coughs> which are the last two iterations of this. So you start getting a very quick kind of, you know, what are areas doing? What are the patterns of gentrification and so on, how are those having an impact on deprivation levels? So you can look at this super output area level. You can also look higher up at, for example, what local authorities are doing. And I'm not going to go and try and explain all this, but it's absolutely fascinating. You know, so we can, can sit and unpick a lot of this all the time uh, for, for a long time. But what you're seeing here is dark reds are areas that have become much more deprived over the five-year period and dark blue that have become less deprived uh, over the period compared to other areas in the country. Um, so you get a kind of very rich picture of, of, of change when you look at comparisons. It's not a direct measure because you're ranking each of these super output areas across the country, but you are seeing patterns of change compared to other areas. Research always start, also starts looking then at saying, well, what are the prevalence of other issues, things that aren't taken account of in this particular model? So, for example, here we've got things like, um, you know, happy chew subjects like opiate and crack use um, broken down by level of deprivation. So, again, this is the, the score, the index of multiple deprivation score for each area in this study against the uh, proportion, the prevalence of other social issues and so on. So you start seeing very strong correlations, and this comes across the board. So if you look at uh, a, a number of issues, and here we've got people killed and seriously injured, including children and pedestrians, and traffic accidents. Again, what does that look like compared to the, 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 the level of, of multiple deprivation? So you have an, an enormous kind of range of research that this feeds into as a kind of factor, a social and economic factor in some of the analysis. Um, so I guess the kind of point here is that you are getting very quickly a range of different uses and different sectors using this data. Um, we've added up the sorts of programs that are used to fund this, that use this data to fund for funding, and we've come to a, a sum somewhere north of a billion pounds, which is why we kind of use that catchy, catchy title. 
but we're coming up with new ones all the time. So this, we came across recently, the Premier League football clubs put money in every year to support grassroots football in deprived communities. It's a significant sum, you know, it's kind of tens of millions. And again, they use the IMD, the Index of Multiple Deprivation, to target that fund, those funds. So you get kind of really interesting things like that, which just come up, you know, kind of come out of the woodwork every now and again. And finally, just to finish this up, you get kind of other ones, which, you know, slightly left field as well, but really interesting. So here, you can, you can put your postcode in here, um, if anyone wants to Google it while we're talking, but uh, you can put your postcode in, and they'll send you wildflowers. Um, they have been looking at how, what, what, what the kind of levels of take-up of this, uh, of this, of this um, free, free service, and how that relates to deprivation and so on, and they find that actually take-up and impact is greater in deprived areas from that service. It's really interesting. It's a, you know, it, it sounds like a fun thing, but it's also a serious thing. So it's, it's another use of this, of this index, of this data. So, just to kind of pull that bit, that side together, by producing a, a, a robust and data set that's open, that people can easily access and easily reuse, you can really drive reuse across loads of different sectors. And that's the sort of first lesson. You know, the open data here clearly has a value. Um, the most visits for this particular statistic, the most visits to all, of all government statistics pages, about 150,000, which for a really deep, geeky data set is quite, quite you know, a high figure. Um, clearly, sort of national and local media are picking up on it very, very quickly. Um, local authorities and public services and commissioners use it widely. It's widely used across research and so on. Um, we keep a, a track of all of the uses. We're just sort of building that up as we go. Um, so do, do ping in any. We always love hearing more examples, so please do ping in to, the, uh, to us or either Twitter or email to me, indicesofdeprivation.co.uk, if you're interested in, in seeing how other groups have used it as well. Um, and on Twitter, at indices2015. So that's the kind of first half. I think that's the kind of, you know, there's evidence that you get a really widely used data set. What I want to kind of pick up on the other side then is, is you know, what, did we do, what, what were the kind of special things that we put together to do this? What did you need to really drive and power that sort of, a, 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 of data set that's so widely used? And I think it really comes under, I've kind of used data science here as the sort of current buzz, buzz phrase, but really the idea here is you are looking at how to maximise the value of the data you hold, or possibly the data that others hold, for decisions, whether that be decisions on your funding programmes or decisions on the sorts of, you know, to support policy and so on, whether it's about social impact, economic growth and so on. So I think it comes under this sort of you know, loose collection, this title of data science, but loose collection of things that you do to, to maximise the value of data. And this perhaps where I just kind of get into a bit of example around how we ran the project, um, which I think really draws on a lot from software development. So the sorts of things that the government digital service is doing around public services and so on and how you design for user needs and so on, all of those things translate very directly across to how you create data sets and data information sources that people want to reuse. You have exactly the same focus on what is the need, user need, exactly the same focus on quality, on testing and validation and so on, and iterative necessary. All of those things read straight across, directly across. And I think this is perhaps where this is a slight change from the open data as publisher and they will come build it and it's for others to use. 
what we've taken here is a very firm, very strong user-led approach that says, to produce this data that is going to be widely used, that has value, we're going to look very hard at the sorts of things people want to do and, want, and how they might use it. So that's kind of taking a slightly different approach from some of the messages under the open data agenda in general, I guess. Um, so the kind of user need, and I, I won't kind of you know, bang on about this too much because I, I think a lot of it's fairly straightforward and understandable, but just to get a sense of what we've done. We started off with a very firm focus on user needs. We were wanting to estimate local deprivation levels. And why was that? Because we know that some, some groups want to target those sorts of programs. So we had a couple of kind of things like it had to be nationally consistent because you had to compare across areas. And that then leads into the sorts of data sets and the sorts of techniques you need to apply. It's the kind of principle of, 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 of how you're going to collect and analyze the data. Um, the data quality is really important here. I know I kind of mentioned about iterative processes, and you can iterate and improve and so on. But data quality for this set is so important that actually it's difficult to iterate. Because if you get it wrong, people are going to spend money and come back and be very unhappy. Um, this, this is, uh, I think, the fifth update of this, of this kind of approach, of this index, over the last 15 years. On a very early round, there was an error in one of the, uh, one of the domains. Um, and it was found pretty quickly by people who were using it. It was fixed. It made very little difference to the results. But the minister had to stand up and apologize. And it was not sure it was Parliament or House of Lords, and apologize that there was an error in this thing. And you kind of think, well, if, if you're talking about kind of impact of errors, that's quite a significant one in the political process. But so you really do want data quality to be absolutely paramount here. The other one is that to use administrative data you really, it's, it's messy stuff. Organizations hold data in all sorts of ways. You have to be very clear on what you're using and how you're processing and so on. So people like the UK Statistics Authority are very careful to look at what data quality looks like. Looks like. Um, and at the time, there were questions over the crime data. And you, some of you may remember that there were front page news on crime data not fit for, fit for purpose. Crime statistics lost their quality badge of, of, of you know, kite mark of quality. So a lot of stuff there. To kind of you know, ad address this and make sure we were going on the same the right way, we brought in a lot of user engagement of, and, and early on. Um, we brought in the National Centre for Social Research to run this, this side of the, the piece of work. Advisory group with users and data experts. Very wide range of, our, of discussions, including is it a deprivation to not be able to afford to live in areas like Kensington and Chelsea? So if you're talking about housing affordability, and how does that compare with housing affordability in, say, the northeast and so on? So, you know, really kind of fundamental questions on the nature of deprivation. Um, dissemination and guidance and so on, all of these kind of back, you know, kind of boring documentation things are really important when, when users are going to take the data and do stuff with it. Um, so a whole bunch of things there, and I probably haven't got time to unpick them, but you can kind of see the sorts of things we did. Um, the design was really important. This wasn't a just get it out there and let other people sort it out and stuff like that. So you have a very careful theory and hypothesis around what de multiple deprivation means and how to measure that. And then you link that together with what data sources are out there. So there's an a very, very kind of in-depth scoping phase where you're essentially what, doing a hunting and gathering exercise. What, what information do people hold? Could you use it? Um, and the, that was then linked back to the, to the user engagement and kind of going out to people and saying, what sorts of things do you want us to look at? What sorts of things, you know, how does this look? Is this going to be good enough? Um, you then start building in 
multiple administrative, multiple sources to try and improve the quality of the data. So I'm going to talk about that very quickly in a moment. Um, and then there's a bunch of statistical techniques. And I don't know how interested you are, but happy to answer questions on those. But really, the whole design is around data quality and so on and matching user needs. So just to give a quick example then of the data that went in, we took data from an enormous range of, of, of government agencies, of, minute, of departments and so on. Um, but this is one indicator. There are 37 indicators wrapped into seven domains. You don't need to know all of those, but essentially one indicator here around what mental health need. There is no single kind of data source for this that really captured what we wanted to cover. So we looked at four, and this gives you sort of example of the sorts of data we looked at. From hospital episode statistics, HES data, which are made available under data share from NHS Digital, we know people coming and going to hospital for mental health purposes and reasons which are coded uh, with, with certain diagnoses. We also know, and we have that down to, say, what super output area they're in, so they live in, so you have that at residential level. We don't know names and all that kind of stuff, and we don't want to. Um, GP prescriptions. We know what GPs are prescribing for mental health, again, for mental health purposes, so anxiolytics and things like that. We don't know, again, to who, and we don't want to, but we know roughly what the, the GP prescription um, practice looks like, so where patients come from and are registered, and we know what prescription levels are like, so we can kind of apportion that out. We know that DWP, the Department of Work and Pensions, give certain benefits to people for, again, mental health purposes, mental health reasons. And we know the numbers of those groups in each area. And we know, you know at the very extreme end of mental health issues, we know data on suicides, and again, where people are, are you know, resident. So those four sources, which are completely independent, and that's a really important thing, can be combined to produce a much stronger measure of overall mental health need than any one of those sources alone. So you've got a very sort of you know, statistical malarkey just to bring them together, which I'll happily talk about in detail until you kick me out. Um, but uh, you, can, you can essentially bring that together to create a single reasonably robust measure of mental health need that is more robust than any one single source. Um, and that kind of basically says, says all of that. Can I just ask a question? Um, that mixture part, isn't it a bit, bit of an art, which is a science? I think there is no, yes, there is no sort of single empirical answer of how you do it. So, yes, it's a, there's a desire, there's a statistical design and a project design for how we've done that. Um, so the way that they're mixed together using factor analysis or sort of essentially drawing out the weights and so on, and the way that the areas are ranked and then combined with other indicators is very much a kind of, here is an open methodology which we've looked at to, to meet certain user needs and the principles of, of the multiple deprivation theory that, we've, that we're working to. But it then goes, goes out for formal consultation and kind of feedback from, from various groups. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so in some sense it is an art and a science and a design. Based on the on the users, that mixing may have to be different, right? Which which users? Whoever, whoever they are, whoever that cohort is. So if it's if it's people who are very uh, interested in young people and suicide rates and more of that end of mm. things, then they want maybe a different mix to you know some of it, some 
Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And you can use some of the. You can re, essentially you can remesh together a lot of the indicators or the domains in different ways. Absolutely. And for example, if you were interested in looking at the association between the overall index and crime levels, you might want to take crime levels out of the index so there's no circularity. Things, things like that. Yeah. Um, so delivery, and I'm probably kind of running short on time, but the, the, the way we delivered this, I think, was a really interesting one, again, for um, data groups and research groups and statisticians. This is kind of fairly basic stuff if you come from software development teams, but essentially we've read across a lot of the work around you know, the, the product management kind of um, you know, hierarchy and so on, but using things like online software, Jira for task management, you know, put in... Any, any, any software you like there, but very carefully um, described uh, uh, steps and process that you can really quickly disseminate across quite a large team. So we were working with 10 different organizations, including six universities. So we really wanted to disseminate kind of the process and the methodology very quickly. Um, we needed to audit, audit and essentially re replicate all of the process, all of the steps. So we used a bunch of different uh, um, tool, but, you know, uh, software um, languages and so on, so statistical things like Stata, SPSS and SAS. Um, we used various other things along the way as well. Very importantly, version control around you know, what's changed and kind of what, what's the process and make it very clear that we can kind of you know, review this and peer review it and then check it independently. So a whole kind of bunch of steps which often people kind of don't think about when you're producing data sets or open data. You think about it, just publish it, get it out. If there are errors, people will flag it up and we'll fix it. You know, and it's all in Excel and that kind of stuff. You've really got to move on from that kind of mindset when you're talking about uh, data sets that are going to be so widely used and so influential. Um, independent checking, very important. And uh, basically a lot of this fed into the UK Stats Authority National Statistics process, uh, which we ran alongside to essentially independently audit, validate the process and the work that we were doing. Um, so they have a very nice toolkit for working with administrative data. It's well worth a look if you're working in this area. Um, so just to wrap it up, and it, you know, probably just cantering it through, through it a bit too quickly, but just to wrap up, I think there are kind of three lessons from the work here. And the first one is clearly administrative data. The data that organisations like government agencies and health, uh, Department of Health and hospitals and so on, has enormous value for an enormous range of how to focus services, how to target services, how to evaluate services. But unlocking that value is much more than just publishing it. So open data is great, but it's not enough on its own. I think for, if you're talking about very care, but very widely used sets, you have to have a really strong view of who the users are and so on. Um, the second one is something around bringing together Yes, the sort of areas like, I've called them data science skills here and techniques and work processes, but essentially bringing together the sorts of development processes together with business teams, so the groups that kind of know what the data is or know the sorts of ways of measuring and so on. So that was a big piece of the work here, was to kind of bridge that gap between skills and understanding the user value. Um, the third one, quality is absolutely key to user trust. If you're going to use it to spend real money, you need to have a very kind of a clear view on that, on that quality uh, threshold that you're applying. And it is okay to iterate and approve, and people talk about agile and so on, but you've really got to make that clear. And if you lose people's trust through poor quality initial outputs and first releases and so on, you need to be very clear what your improvement 
methodology is going to be. Um, so demonstrate the quality of your outputs, you know, prove, show what validation and process you're working to. So there's a kind of bunch of, of different things brought together, which is why I think it's kind of so hard, but so interesting and such an interesting area to work in. Um, and I hopefully that's kind of given you a sense of what the index of deprivation is, why it's important and why it's widely used, uh, and how we've kind of some of the big steps that we've gone into to actually develop that data set, um, the sorts of ways we've taken some of the software techniques across. So I'll, I'll probably wrap it up there. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Tom, for a fascinating talk. I'm now going to open it up to the floor if anyone has any questions. It'd be great if you could introduce yourself first. And don't worry too much if it doesn't resonate in the mic. It's more for the people that are following on YouTube. OK, I'm Ab Karpadizi, and I'm on the um, Startup Accelerator program with Odia. Uh, question, Tom, is uh, how do you monetize uh, using this, this type of huge billion pound data. <laughs> Charge a small commission fee. Um, I think the point here is that this is not about commoditizing or monetizing this data source because it's really important, important that it's made open. Um, so if you were looking at developing a business out of this, I think personally that's not, not my kind of interest or bag. But ways, different ways of monetizing it. You monetize the expertise around using it. You monetize the expertise around using the sorts of underlying data sets that go into this. So the skills, the process of the kind of software processes, um, the, the essentially the consultancy element, um, and look to work with those groups. Um, in terms of ramping up, I mean, you might be thinking of something that, you know, scales massively. Don't know. If I had an answer, I might not be here. Um, but I think the, the point with this is that its value is in making it open and it's in, in helping people improve their social impact. Hi, I'm um, my question is just around the fact that you said at the beginning it was some public and some private data, but now that it's open data, like at what level can you delve into it and at what point does that private data become public? Mm, mm, very good question. We, we, may, we published as much as we could. So... We, some data sets were brought together under data sharing from NHS Digital, the example, the hospital episode stats example. Other data sets were processed sort of internally by groups, you know, and we didn't have access to the raw data. Um, but we always published where we were able to. So at some sense, once it's anonymized and then aggregated up to the small areas, to the, the, the super output areas, then you look at what the kind of numbers like. Can you unpick that to individuals? If so, we aren't going to publish it. So, yeah, that kind of that was the principle. So, in practice, all of the, the overall index is published. There are then seven domains in that, and then majority of the, the indicators are published as well. Yeah. Hi, um, my name is Jan, and I come from Myanmar, and I also run uh, part of a team that runs an open data portal there. Uh, one, the question I have is, how important is the, 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 the data quality that you speak of, uh, it, of coming in from government agencies, especially in developing countries where you don't have that? Uh, and if you build a system like this or a portal like this on top of bad quality data, does it do more harm than good? Hmm. There's no such thing as perfect data, so you can't wait for that. Um, all data sources are biased. So 
once you can understand those sources of bias, so for example, if you're looking at what is the level of unemployment in this area, then you might be interested in those people on unemployment benefits. But you know that it excludes people who aren't on benefits for whatever reason, um, or who also may be on sanctions of benefits, so not, not counted yet. So there are kind of a bunch of biases in that. But if you understand the biases and you understand the data sources, then you can, in principle, produce something, an output, which gives you a, a, a value. And you say, OK, it's got bias, so I know it misses these groups. I know it's, uh, you know, in this area it may be less good, in this area it may be better. So it's, it's difficult to quantify that, but by understanding those sorts of biases, then you can produce something that's of, of value. And then you can iterate around that loop and say, OK, it's better than not having it. Yeah, and then that feeds back. And so if, the, if there are ways that you can see the data sources can be improved, then that's a feedback and say, OK, there is a valuable output here. We can feed this back to the underlying data sources and providers and publishers and then actually improve the data that way. To get through to something that's like this that's widely used, I think it's really a matter of understanding what are the needs. You know, how accurate do people need to, need to have the data and what are they wanting to do with it before you can kind of answer that question. But I think you can start from data of, of known, you know, poor quality and work upwards. Henry uh, Story, uh, do you have a um, uh, a roadmap for uh, a move towards uh, linked data? Um, or are, we, are you already on it? Or, uh, Short answer is no, because uh, the easy answer is because a lot of this data is available at individual level within uh, in administrative systems that are used to administer, run some service. So, for example, people receiving benefits, there is a series of, of underlying data sources that the Department of Work and Pensions use to make sure that the right people get the right benefits. You know? It's uh, kind of you know, your own thing there. But so that data is then run, is run internally. To link those sorts of data sets across to data held by another government agency is not trivial, and it's not, there's an enormous kind of data-sharing question there. So I guess the point about linked data, of whether you can link up those sorts of systems to other systems, is kind of what, you know, that's a tricky one. If you think of linked data in terms of using standard and consistent definitions then I think there is a move to that, and that's something that's not you know, good to see. So using the sorts of registers that people like um, GDS are starting to put together, which means that you can say, okay, now we can start using some of those consistent underlying things like geography and so on. So there were kind of, you know, it's patchy. There was some stuff there, but not, not, not that much. Personally, I think it's going to be really tricky to, to produce something that, you know, linked data set in the sense that you mean. Mark Harvey from Resurgence, one of the ODI startups uh, working on climate resilience, including flooding. And I'm interested in the two hats that you wear, the, uh, the chair of the Environment Agency Data Advisory, as, and whether you've sort of seen any crossover between uh, areas such as flooding risk and the interests of mm. the Environment mm. Agency and the, the, the response community or the prevention community mm. and the deprivation Index mm. because what you have coming out of the environment agency is, is a lot of kind of geo geohazard data, but you, you have the demographic geo data. And I'm just wondering whether you've got any thoughts to share with us about 
the crossover and whether there have been any practical mm. outcomes from that. Yeah, that's a very nice question. I think that there are lots of overlaps, but probably like lots of other different areas that I you know, know far less about. Um, so two, two, two ways that that direction has worked. First up, we looked as part of the index indices of deprivation scoping work, we looked, could we bring in measures of, of for example, flood risk and so on? Um, because that, you know, in terms of local quality of the environment and so on, or quality of housing, that kind of thing, then flood risk is clearly going to have some sort of effect, and big effect, as we know. We decided not to for various reasons, and one part of that was it doesn't, it, in terms of the areas that have been affected, that actually have had flooding, it's quite narrow across the country. You have areas that are at higher risk, but they haven't experienced flooding. Um, in the sorts of ways that we can measure and then use that's nationally consistent or nationally comparable. So for that reason, we didn't include it. It's certainly something we, we scoped and looked at. Um, we do use stuff around air quality, though. So we have direct um, data on or measurements and estimates of air quality across the country, and that's very, you know, a very important environmental issue, clearly. Um, so there is stuff around the local environment that we use. Going back the other way, I know that people use the indices in all sorts of modelling. Um, including looking at environmental risks and so on. Um, so yes, it's definitely a two-way street. Mm. Do we have any other questions? I know that I've got one to ask. So I was wondering about the international dimension of your work and whether other countries have been in touch with you, or do you know of something similar that is done in other countries in terms of indices? Mm. Yes, so we the, the university research um, or team that we were spun out from at Oxford um, has gone, to, gone on to do lots of work in southern Africa where we've applied essentially a very similar uh, uh, model but obviously using different indicators, using different uh, degrees or dimensions of deprivation. You know, clearly the kind of issue of what, what, what is poverty and so on and what's the lack of access to services are going to have very different um, meanings. But the same type of approach of looking at different domains and how you measure under those domains and the indicates of what data is available can kind of be brought in. So definitely there are areas that are using this. But there's an increasing interest around how you measure inequality and highlight inequality and deprivation levels through things like the Sustainable Development Goals. So there is, is clearly a, a, a massive international dimension for this. Yeah, so I think that's one of the interesting areas to, to, to kind of look into and explore more. from myanet.com, one of the startups on the Accelerator program. Um, in talking, following on from the question, so the different uh, deprivation in, in indexes, um, could you create like a, a continental or a global deprivation map? Would that work? And is the data too inconsistent in different areas? And does most deprived in the UK mean the same as most deprived in South Africa? Is there such thing, you, because the data isn't consistent, um, does that make sense to do that? Is, mm. yeah. I think you could even go much smaller than that and say, can we have a UK-wide consistent measure? And there isn't. There's a lot of work on harmonisation, but there are different um, organisations that run the statistics. There are different organisations that run the, the services and so on, so government agencies, etc. So there is a totally different set of, of statistics and data sets that are out there. It's very difficult to compare. So if you, for example, look at children going to children's exam results and then think about the kind of different types of exams that they take across the country, then even at that level it's not comparable in the UK. So yeah, to get to get to 
European-wide or worldwide is a, is a tricky thing. But there are probably higher level, well, there are, there are higher level measurements and indices that do take a consistent approach. You know, and, but you could benchmark. Which you can benchmark, you. exactly. Um, but those might be more based on sort of a more objective criteria like income or you know, overall proportion living below a certain amount of, of you know, below some kind of poverty threshold. So difficult to measure a sort of a consistent deprivation. So um, can I ask one more question? Yeah. Does uh, deprivation just... Sorry. Yeah. Does deprivation just refer to what you can afford rather than maybe you could be culturally, culturally rich mm. Mm. and have everything but not have anything, you know? Yeah, no, no, I mean, deprivation in, in the instance, the way, the way that we're defining or describing and, and the methodology that we're using is much richer or much wider than just income. So we have, a, we have one domain of the seven, which is income is low income, and that's what you might think of as a poverty-type measure. But then there are other things like being out of work or not being able to afford housing or living in poor-quality housing, poor-quality environment, that kind of thing. So there's a whole bunch of... Of, of other areas that we look at, other types of deprivation. Yeah, so it's, it's wider than just poverty. Yeah. Thanks. Hello, uh, my name is Richard. I work for uh, Suza, which is an open source software company. Uh, my question really was around all of this um, open data. Um, what measures are in place to actually avoid this data being abused? By abused, do you mean used badly, or do you mean underlying data uh, well, I mean, for used example, to identify the, individuals? The, the crime for example. data in a particular area, say, um, sort of a, you know, a location in London, uh, being you know targeted by car insurance companies, and then up, you know, mm. them mm. increasing the premiums of car insurance and you know, car insurance uh, premiums in, in that area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, I mean, that's a really interesting area, and it's about what, what do we do about increased information for decisions? And are there certain types of information, certain types which lead to decisions that we might see as biased? So, for example, at the moment, there's a, 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 a great deal of interest in algorithms helping just make decisions around, or take your pick, in, from insurance through to sen police sentencing, crime sentencing, and so on. Um, what you're seeing there is an example where the information is being used without kind of additional thought on the implications and the, the impact that that's having. But at some level, your example is, if there is a high crime area, which we're picking out with the information, is it right that insurers and so on say, well, this is a higher risk area, therefore we're going to charge higher premiums? And that's a difficult one to, to argue against from a commercial perspective, but you might decide that that's the sort of thing that government says, well, in certain areas, we might step in. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the flooding environment. So Flood Re is a, 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 a very large consortium which is set up to help provide flooding insurance and so on for areas where, which are at higher risk, so to, to ensure that people don't drop off the system. So there is, yeah, that's a tension. It's always a trade-off. But I think by, by producing the information openly and seeing it's, how it's used, you then can see what, what, what that sort of thing is flagging up and, and whether you want to in, it, it, in some way intervene or ha put some kind of intervention initiative in. That's a good question. A final questions. So let me just pass it over here. <coughs> just uh, my name is Captain Varia. I think, consultant. Uh, I think uh, Richard uh, raised a very interesting point that uh, um, by knowing that information, you could make a, an area even more deprived 
you know, I mean, at the very, very extreme. Um, my question was just a slightly different question in, in the sense that um, journalists, because uh, um, stuff around deprivation and inequalities in the newspapers must be every single day. There must be some story on it. Um, how much are they encouraged to get, get the statistics really right by using data like yourself? So uh, my question was, how much do you make sure, kind of police that, to make sure that mm. the wrong stories are not going out in the Daily Mail, for example? You know? mm. Uh, mm. I mean, there are a lot of people like facts, you know, full facts, kind of facts checker type organisations that look at the way politicians and uh, use data and the way that media portray and present statistics and data. And I think you can only do that kind of checking if you can trace back to the source. So if you know that people are using a particular data set and it's open, you can then check it very quickly. Um, so I think there's, a, you know, there's an argument for people to, to, to footnote their sources better but by having open data in this way, you can check that more easily. Does that stop it? I don't know. You, know. you as an organisation... No, 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 no. It's not something we get involved in. No. Um, just to continue that question on, on deprivation. Um, I've heard that uh, Amartya Sen had a, had a notion of, dip, uh, of um, uh, richness based on capabilities. Mm. And he pointed out that in in uh, some part of um, Asia, I think in Tibet, people were living in very severe poverty, but actually lived longer and better than people in Harlem. Um, so, so one aspect of uh, deprivation might be you know, cultural deprivation in the sense of how many mm -hmm. capabilities do people have? Are they reading? Are they... Um, do they know how to live? Do they know how? Do they do they have a, a, an art of life? You I mean, know, that would be a yeah. French way of putting it. <laughs> no. Can yeah. they make their own food? Um, because that would have, that changes, of course, a lot. And that might uh, answer the question about um, the data being dangerous. Because if 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 information like that came out, then you might actually know. Well, these people are actually rich. They're not poor. Um, mm. Right. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I've got a, a lot of time for that, and I think I'm, I'm very interested in people looking at how do we, can we measure or estimate well-being in some sense. You know, it's a very difficult concept, but it kind of includes things like that that are, you know, much, much broader or much richer than some of the just the hard measures we're looking at here. So, no, I've got a lot of time for that sort of, you know, idea. Um, we've got time for one final question, if someone wants to wrap us up. Yeah, got one over here. Uh, I just wanted to ask uh, broader than just the data and what you're putting out um, the knowledge that you might be able to collect and share to overcome deprivation is that something that you have in mind and is that something that is beyond just putting out this magnificent piece of data is there something more from you that you see a much bigger picture of where you want to go with this, and mm. where, if so, where is that, and where are you with that journey? It's mm. a big question. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Good one to finish on. Excellent. Um, I mean, from, from my interest, I'm interested in what you can use the information to understand around you know, what, what the issues are, and can we measure those, and then what we've affected. So what we're looking at here is almost like the current pattern of, issue, of deprivation, whatever, however you define that. I'm really interested in, can you use the data sets 
that are held here, that, that people have in organisations like the NHS and so on, to look at impact of programmes. So really it's a nice example of that is, say, the Ministry of Justice Data Lab, where if you're running a programme and trying to reduce reoffending, you can put it's very difficult to measure that and monitor the impact of that because lots of your sample keep disappearing and going to back to jail. So if you if the Ministry of Justice can provide you information back to say, well, how how successful is this program being and how successful it is compared to other matched programs, then that gives you something for better services for redesigning your own service. So I'm really interested in that. How do you use the data sets to look at impact over time? But in terms of the programs, that's that's not my bag. I don't know anything about how you know what kind of programs tackle deprivation or reduce reoffending or those sorts of you know the loads people spend their lives, to, you know, looking at that very very hard. And I'm simply looking at the data, saying how can we help those redesign in their services. I suppose it contributes to it. Um, oh, um, so the data, it, data can be subjective, right? always so and it's quantitative what about other state information qualitative data people's opinions and softer things that you can't mm. put a number on mm. maybe through thematic analysis but you can't actually do that and that is so so rich and how do you cater for those things in the really important data that you're putting out to give a kind of whole view mm. or can you that sounds like the subject for the next talk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good question. Yeah, I have an easy answer yeah, for that one. So, yeah. That's yeah. a perfect transition. I think we're just about out of time. <laughs> Please join me in thanking Tom Smith for a fascinating talk. Thank you. Thanks very much. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.